This evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we'll be reading verses 32 through 44. It's found on page 991 and 992. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and beginning our reading with verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our passage this evening... We are again reminded that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history. It is the focal point of God's plan of salvation. It is on the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ bore the sins of this evil world. It is also on the cross where we can find the vilest, most depraved expression of evil ever imaginable on the part of mankind. And in this passage before us this evening, we find a heartless intensity, a growing intensity of hatred, vulgarity, and brutality. I refer to it as dark thunderclouds of depraved humanity building and churning. It was 
humankind's wickedness that first of all tried to kill Jesus after his, his birth, tried to discredit his teaching, made every effort to try to mislead and corrupt his disciples. It was man's wickedness that had betrayed him, denied him, arrested, maligned, and battered him. The incomparable demonstration of man's wickedness is seen in the crucifixion. We need to understand its significance. Actually, very detailed descriptions of the crucifixion are simply quite rare. Most writers avoid the gruesome topic. One author writes, the social stigma and disgrace associated with crucifixion in the ancient world can hardly be overstated. It was usually reserved for slaves, criminals of the worst sort, from the lowest levels of society, military deserters, and especially traitors. And among the Jews, it carried an additional stigma. The phrase in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, a hanged man is accursed by God, was understood to mean that the very method of death brought a divine curse upon the one that was crucified. So we see this accumulation of evil from the past, present, future, descending as a dark cloud upon our Savior as he is on the cross. And as we see that, we need to also admit and confess our involvement. Truly, it is our sins that crucified the Lord. For our call to worship, Pastor Dave read from Isaiah 53. I'm going to read a few of those verses again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not one person is excluded in this passage. Now we believe the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ was absolutely necessary as a part of God's plan of salvation, of redemption. And our text in Matthew 27 brings the focus on human wickedness as Jesus is led to his death, to his crucifixion on the cross. Over the course of the next few days until Easter Sunday, 
we're going to reflect on and remember the significant event some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was executed on the cross. It's hard to even imagine and fathom. Thorns plunged into his scalp, lungs burning with pain, legs knotted in cramps, but far worse than his broken body, the shredding, the tearing apart of his heart and soul when God the Father turned from the Son. Think of his own people calling for his death. His own disciples betray him. Friends run for cover and the Father for the first and the only time in eternity turns his back on the Son. As we look at this passage this evening, our message will focus on two things. First of all, we're going to look at the many different faces of evil. And then second, the suffering and the silence of the Lord as the Lamb of God. So we begin with the many faces of evil that are present. The first face of evil is that of spiritual ignorance. We find it in the soldiers. They were called legioneers. They were the ones who processed with Jesus and led him to the place of execution. These were the elite soldiers, those who were hand-chosen, personal escorts, bodyguards of the most prestigious Roman authorities. These men were those who traveled often. They were less familiar with Judaism than the other Roman soldiers who were stationed in Jerusalem. So most likely they were ignorant of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And so in their minds, he was just another criminal, another man condemned to die. And their job was simply to administer the firm hand of justice. In the verse just prior to where we picked up reading in our text, It says, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own cloths on him and led him away to be crucified. And then above that, it says they had released Barabbas and they had Jesus flogged and then they handed him over to be crucified. He was flogged. That word means to scourge, and it was a whip that was used that had a short wooden handle, and attached to it were long, sharp pieces of metal or bone. The person being scourged would be tied to a post. Usually there was two scourgers, one on either side of the victim, and they would just take turns lashing him across the back, lacerating the muscles, veins and arteries would be torn open, internal organs often exposed. And quite often, the criminal would literally die from the scourging even before 
he could be let out for execution. But here we have these men, and they far exceed the basic duty that was given to them. There's a whole company of men estimated at around 600, and Jesus became the victim of their cruel entertainment. We're told they stripped the clothes from his lacerated and bleeding flesh, and in a vicious and a mocking fashion, they found props to dress up Jesus as if he were a king. We're told that they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and then they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Can you imagine that vicious, vicious game that they were playing? A <laughs> king, look at this king. What a joke. Look, king, how easy it is to strip you of your power. Look, we beat you with your own scepter. Where is your army to defend you? Wickedness. Evil has a way of multiplying. We see it in the second face, spiritual animosity. We're told that there were two robbers that hurled insults at him. The original Greek word translated robbers denotes cruel bandits, those kind of people who took pleasure in tormenting and abusing and often killing their victims. Most likely Jewish men, at least very, very familiar with the Jewish culture. They knew about Jesus. They knew that the people referred to him as the Messiah. And Jesus represented the righteousness which they in their lives loathed. Those two robbers knew in their hearts that Jesus truly stood in righteous judgment on their sinfulness. But having a greater love for their, themselves and their own possessions, they hurled their angry words of contempt against Jesus, the one who alone could give them salvation. And in fact, we see the amazing grace of God as it's made manifest later, as we're told in the Gospel of Luke, when one of these hardened, hate-filled criminals turns to Jesus for forgiveness. Spiritual animosity. Third, spiritual inconsistency. It's represented in the steady stream of people that were passing by this processional to Calvary. The Jewish pilgrims there on their way to celebrate the Passover. Many had even heard Jesus speak or preach. They had seen him perform his miracles. Some perhaps participated in his triumphal entry just a few days early. Perhaps they were joining in, shouting, Hosanna to the Lord. And here are those same people turning against him as he faces the cross. 
these people had a place for Jesus only when he satisfied their own wants. In verses 39 and 40, we read, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who had destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Aren't those bold, accusatory words? I believe they were spoken to mask the weak and insecure hearts of the people. Their acceptance is conditional. Jesus, we will serve you only if you are the Messiah who, who's coming to rescue us from the Romans. The final face of evil we see is spiritual hypocrisy. It's found in the religious leaders. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They were the ones who were the primary instigators of the crucifixion. They were the most early and diligent critics of Jesus. They were constantly looking and following and trying to find a way to, to trip him up and ultimately to eliminate him. And as religious authorities, as spiritual leaders, these were men who devoted their lives to the study of God's word and to the tradition of the rabbis. So if anyone should have known the truth, if anyone should have recognized and received Jesus as the Messiah, it was this group of men. And yet we're told they're so consumed with rage in Jesus' claim that he was the son of God that they enticed the people and had them join them in their opposition and their condemnation of Jesus. We find it in verses 42 and 43. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. These religious leaders, pious, pompous on the outside, aiming those poisonous words to turn the people against our Lord. It reminds us of something. It reminds us of Matthew 4, verses 3 and 6, when Satan tempted Jesus. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Then a little bit later, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down and command your angels to catch you. If you are the Son of God, those were the exact words that Satan used when he challenged Jesus in the desert. And now they're spewing forth from the mouths of these religious leaders who claimed to be God's representatives. We see many, many faces of evil. Evil surrounds Jesus as he's on the cross. 
the ignorance of the soldiers, the animosity of the criminals, the inconsistency of the crowd, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. We pause tonight to ask the question, which face is mine? Where am I in those faces of people? We're told through Isaiah that the Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before it shears is silent. The Lord laid on him our iniquity. Let's move to our second point. We look at the suffering and the silence of Jesus as the Lamb of God. One author, Martin Hengel, writes, Even in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a punishment in which the caprice and sadism of the executioners were given full reign. Crucifixion of a criminal was often preceded by various kinds of torture. Among the Romans, flogging was common. It was the lowest, the most brutal form of execution that was ever invented by man. And it was also the most public. From the very moment of the sentencing, the criminal was on public display, forced to carry his own cross on his shoulders in this hideous mock parade to the place of execution, publicly left to hang bound or nailed to the cross as an example to others that they should not follow the example of this person. The crowds who, who followed along treated the execution as a form of entertainment. It happened regularly. It was a penalty for rebellious foreigners, for violent criminals, and for habitual robbers. Horrifying, disgusting, it brought out savage hatred. People were trying to find a scapegoat to blame the problems in their society. And so it would all be lashed out toward that criminal, that individual hanging and crucified. The goal of every crucifixion was to subject the victim to supreme indignity and cruelty. That's why it was inflicted most often on violent criminals, on extremely rebellious people. That's why it was carried out publicly as a deterrent to other people, for future people. It discouraged them from stealing because that's what could happen if you stole. Crucifixion satisfied a lust for revenge. The the cruelty of the people. Often they would be tortured. And then there'd be a public display of the body on a prominent hill. Again, utter humiliation. 
And according to many authors, victims were not buried even. The crucified victims served as food for the wild beasts and the birds of prey. That made humiliation complete. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God takes upon himself our iniquity in order to bring salvation. The offensiveness, the ugliness of the execution marks the level of God's love for his people. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He was publicly shamed. He literally, we are told, became a curse so that we might be able to have victory over sin and death. Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest, most hideous form of punishment because the victim has few, if any, ways to retaliate. Muscles would constantly cramp and the victim would be unable to swat away the crawling, buzzing insects. And if he remained alive, the soldiers would literally break his legs with a blow from a heavy mallet. Then he couldn't push up to get a breath of air and would suffocate. Jesus was mocked. He was insulted. He was handed over to this most cruel form of punishment crucifixion. But that wasn't the greatest moment of his suffering. The greatest moment of pain and grief is found in verse 46, which actually, actually follows the passage that we just read. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such suffering goes beyond our ability to even comprehend or understand. The spiritual and emotional agony of Jesus. If you pause to think about it, the cross is the only moment in all of eternity, when Jesus was separated from his Father. It was the epitome of that phrase, he descended into hell. That moment when this perfect Lamb of God became sin for you and for me. And the Father, God the Father, was compelled to turn his face because his eyes we're too holy to look upon our sins. Throughout all of this suffering, the mocking, the scourging, the separation from God the Father, we're told that Jesus was obedient and he was silent. If anyone was innocent, if anyone had a reason to protest, it was Jesus himself as the precious Lamb of God. But we're told he did not raise his voice in defense. In 1 Peter 2 verse 23, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus knew this was God's plan. God's plan was that the Son take on human flesh and become obedient unto death. And Jesus completed God's plan by taking upon himself human sin. The crucifixion speaks volumes. Aren't we so quick to say, that's not fair. I'm going to pursue you legally. You owe me. We who have such a quick defense and rebuttal, we stand condemned. As Jesus remains silent before his accusers. The passing of over 2,000 years reinforces the truth that we find in the Word of God that people are fallen. As we've seen in our series, the wages of sin is death. People can be cruel and insensitive. They can hurl out words that insult, belittle, and hurt. And still there are so many mesmerized by the power which brings pain to others. And people still reject the king of kings. The faces of evil have not changed. There are those who are ignorant, who show animosity, inconsistency, hypocrisy. On the cross, Jesus died for every single one of those whom God has called, whether ignorant, inconsistent. He shouldered our sin. The cross is such a powerful image. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonder of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We confess it is difficult for us to comprehend not just the physical pain and suffering, but the spiritual and emotional heartache of being abandoned by those whom you love, betrayed, and just left to fend for yourself. And Lord, we realize that it is your love which has compelled 
salvation. It is your plan. And Jesus was completely obedient. And he took upon himself the curse of our sins and suffered the worst kind of punishment and death imaginable. Tonight, as we reflect upon this gift, this amazing sacrifice, and as we gather around the table of our Lord to celebrate communion, may we be a people who are grateful. May we realize, as the song says, our unworthiness and your amazing love and grace so that as we leave this place, we would do so wanting more and more to proclaim what an amazing God you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.